I want to read uh, the text this morning before we get into the message now. Uh, I am writing to you, John says. This is 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. And then these two verses. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, or as the King James Version said, the pride of life, is not from the Father, that is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Let's pause in the word of prayer. Father God, as we are gathered here in your name to worship you, to praise you, to thank you, to express our gratitude, our love for your faithfulness. Father, we not only want to praise and thank you and continue to do so for what you have done in Donna's life and in others who have experienced answers to prayer. But Father, we also bring before you this morning our brothers and sisters in Cameroon, and in many other places in the world where there's unrest, but especially in light of today's presidential election. We pray, Father, for safety, for security, for our missionaries, for our brothers and sisters who love you and who are prepared to give their lives, if necessary, in order to take a stand for Jesus in the place where you have planted them. Father, may your special grace be with them. But, Father, we pray, pray that you would bring peace and tranquility to that land that is so distraught and so uh, full of unrest. And, Father, that ultimately light would triumph over darkness. Now, Father, open our hearts and minds this morning as we look into your word, as we seek to understand more fully from your word what you seek to say to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems to be a, 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 a given that on Thanksgiving we ought to be talking about gratitude uh, and, and reflect on what it is we should be thanking God for. And I suspect that in most of our homes, uh, as you gather, some have already done that yesterday, some are doing it today, some may get together tomorrow. We sit around the table, we enjoy good food, uh, fellowship, family times together. That's kind of the normal thing to do at Thanksgiving. In our family, there's always been a, a tradition that we say, okay, what are you thankful for? But it has always disturbed me to think that most of the things we're thankful for are temporary things. Uh, they're the things of this world, you know, roof over our head, bread on the table, and today it'll be turkey or, or whatever. Uh, and uh, sometimes they're not even so, uh, happy with turkey. It's got to be turducken, uh, you know, just make it go over the top. 
But, but the truth is that the reasons why we ought to be grateful, truly grateful, are much deeper than that. We know most of us accept the fact that there's basically two kinds of people in this world. Uh, there are the optimists and the pessimists. You know the story that the optimist sees the glass half full, the pessimist sees the same glass half empty. Uh, and, and I've generally found that it's more fun to be with the optimists because uh, they're positive people, they're can-do people, they're the people who, who think that there are some possibilities, not just problems around us. And as we go through our transition as a, a church, we, we, we need to be optimistic here, not because just to buoy things up, but because we know God is in charge. He already knows who is going to be our next uh, lead pastor, senior pastor, whatever we want to call him. And uh, uh, being an optimist does not mean that you live in a dream world. It just means that your frame of reference is broader than the specific focus on the issue in front of you. The Bible also talks about two kinds of, uh, of people. Uh, there are those who are the saved people. These are the people who have uh, accepted and embraced the finished work of Christ of Calvary. And this morning our songs reflected that in a beautiful sort of way. Uh, and then there are the lost people, those who have either never heard or, having heard, have deliberately rejected the message of the cross, the message of salvation in Christ. And then the Apostle Paul seems to refer to yet a third kind of category, and, and, and they're sort of a, a strange uh, combination because this third class that he's referring to in his uh, letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 14 through the, the, the beginning of the third chapter, uh, he, he mentions them and calls them worldly or carnal Christians. The, the literal word there is uh, fleshly from the Greek word sarkoi, which is derived from the word sarx, which simply means the flesh. Paul makes it very clear, however, that these kinds of people, worldly Christians, fleshly Christians, uh, are an anomaly. This is not a good state to be in because they profess to be believers in Christ. They may even be able to recite the creed. They may be able to uh, have a perfect church attendance, but actually they live their lives like practicing atheists. They never consider God's plan. It was interesting to hear when Donna made the comment about the fact her surgeon had a plan, but God had a different plan. And it's only through prayer, it's only through faith, it's only through our relationship with Jesus that we can access God's plan and uh, that we in fact can live according to the word. Now this is what John is talking about in his letters. Uh, I love uh, the epistles of John because he is the apostle of love and he has a lot of positive things to say even though occasionally he has to call us short and say now here's a problem don't get into that okay so let's look at the context of today's message uh, the the verses that I read from first John chapter 2 verses 12 to 17 um, one of my favorite portions uh, in this epistle because John states at the outset in 1 John chapter 1 verse 4 that uh, the purpose of writing this letter is so that your joy 
or our joy may be complete. In other words, he's saying he's writing to believers and he's saying, you know, sometimes we miss the main point. Sometimes we get caught up on the peripheral things that speak to us and we fail to understand what God is trying to say to us in the, in the overall. And so, so that our joy may be complete. And, and our text today is in the middle of the second chapter of this letter. Uh, and of course, the, the chapter divisions were not there. It was a letter written on parchment uh, and distributed uh, at that particular point. But there's two parts to this. One, Again, he states the reasons for his writing, verses 12 to 14, describing the victorious Christian community by addressing three groups of people within the church, within the church family. He's, he's writing to little children, to fathers, and to young men. Little children on one end, fathers on the other end, and young men in the middle, uh, basically suggesting probably three different levels of maturity. In fact, the word little children that is used, the Greek word, uh, is a word of endearment. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily say little. It says dear children. Kidlets uh, is how some people would express it. It's, it's a, a form of endearment. Now, the fact that he addresses little children and fathers and young men, but he doesn't say anything about young ladies or uh, mature women. Uh, this is not meant to be sexist. It was simply following the Jewish traditions of the day, which usually spoke, you know, of mankind, not humankind. Uh, it, it didn't talk about womankind. It just talked about uh, collectively using uh, the male um, gender by expressing uh, what, what everyone was uh, involved in, and he basically seeks to uh, address them with the idea of what our benefits are in our salvation, which is ours in Christ. And so that's the first part. The second part in verses 15 to 17, and we'll get to them in a little more detail, is a warning about the world. Um, he is exhorting this faithful community of faith, these believers, he is warning them not to love the world, but to continue in God's will. And, and he contrasts those two. Uh, despite whatever lies or false teachings or philosophies may come their way, and it, it's, it, it's interesting to me because we're living in a day and age where the common world around us is so utterly unscriptural, un biblical, anti-God, anti-morality, anti-everything that for generations we have considered to be the foundation of our life. And yet everything has been turned upside down in the world in which we live today. Satan is the ultimate liar, and he will do everything to either uh, dis discomforted, distort, discourage, divert, and ultimately destroy anything good that comes out of the gospel. So here's the truth about our new reality in Christ. 
And what he means by that in verses 12 to 14 is what we have and what we are because of our faith in Jesus. Remember, John had indicated earlier that there's a new reality which is true for the believer no matter what their circumstances may be. And in 1 John 2, verse 8, this is how he expressed it. I am writing to you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Now, that is a note of optimism. Because what he is saying is, right now things may look dark. And uh, if we think of our current circumstances, socially, politically, uh, with all that's going on in the world today, uh, there are many who say it's never been so bad. Well, I have news for you. If you study history, there have been period upon period upon period where true believers felt this is the last straw. God must finally bring judgment. How can the world continue like this? Whether you were a believer under communism in Stalin's Russia, or whether you were a true believer in Nazi Germany under Hitler, or whether you are a true believer somewhere in the Middle East, where the very fact that you have a cross around your neck or the very fact that you uh, have a sign on your door that indicates that you are a believer is enough reason to kill you. When that happens, people say, well, this, this has got to be the worst it could be. But John says, no. You, you, you need to think there's a new relationship because in him and in you there is a new dynamic because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Amazingly, in the midst of all the persecution that goes on in the world, Christianity is gaining ground. Not in Canada, not in the U.S., because we're way too preoccupied with things, with stuff. But in those countries where your life is on the line for naming the name of Jesus, people are finding faith in him and t making the tough choice, just like our missionaries are making in Cameroon right now, saying, the right thing is not necessarily the safest thing, but we need to do what is right by kingdom values, not by what we would feel comfortable with. And so John picks up this whole idea of the victory which is ours in Christ by pointing to the positive benefits of the Christian life. Here are some specific reasons for gratitude, he says, and for thanksgiving. Consider the biblical test. Again, uh, he repeats himself when he, in verses uh, 12 and 13, uh, writes, I am writing to you, little children. I'm writing to you, fathers. I'm writing to you, young men. Why? Because each of those categories of believers um, at every level of our uh, maturing in Christ, we discover and rediscover what we are and what we have in Christ. And so he says, you have conquered the evil one to the young men because God's word remains in you. And then who, who is he addressing here? Simply uh, different levels in the faith community of people who are legitimately uh, children of God. And John, the elder, uh, could actually have legitimately said to all of them, 
little children. Uh, back uh, the Sunday after Pastor Schaefer had given his announcement and I preached about the way forward, uh, several, several of you came and said to me, you know, Pastor Sig, it was like the father now saying, okay, settle down, just keep, keep, keep your cool. And, and, and John, far more than I, uh, warrant any kind of consideration. But he was the elder among them. He was the one who, uh, who often had uh, not only shared the gospel with them, but he had nurtured and, and mentored many of these people in the first place. And so he can legitimately say to all of them, my dear children, even to the fathers. But he is saying this because he wants to point out specifically um, what God has done for them. It may be nothing more than just a stylistic uh, kind of uh, uh, way of, of expressing himself. What is at the heart of the statement? At the heart is a reason for gratitude. Uh, he points out that the benefits of, of being part of God's family is that we are redeemed. This because the, our faith in Jesus uh, has has allowed us to access God's goodness in a, an amazing way. And so in verse 12, he talks about forgiveness of sin. Your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. He talks about true knowledge of God. You have known him who is from the beginning, verse 13, the first part. And, and to the young men, he says, you have victorious spiritual power. You have conquered the evil one. You know, most of us are particularly worried about uh, young people because they are inundated with the world's philosophies from the moment they enter even kindergarten and then public school and, and it's, the, the screws are tightened as they go to high school and then it gets even worse in university. That's why I'm so thrilled when I see young people leading us in worship. Folks, they could be doing a whole lot worse than playing a little louder than you like. And if you don't understand the, the song, if you don't know if it goes fast or slow, read the words. Meditate on the words. Because they're meant to lead us to worship a unique, powerful, ultimately good God. That's what John is talking about. Forgiveness of sins, true knowledge of God, victorious spiritual power. And so... He repeats himself when he says, I have written. First he says, I, I am writing now. I have written to you. I have written to you. I have written to you. Is he repeating himself? You know, the whole thing is almost like a poem. Um, and, and, and so one is the fulfillment of the other because he's now saying it in, in the past tense, not just for emphasis sake, but he is saying it is an accomplished fact that in Christ, this is who we are. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. You can read that whole passage over and over and let it soak in, because what he is saying to them is not specific to any level or age group. It is common to all believers. We have this life, this new life, in Christ. Now, while we tend to focus primarily on blessings and benefits at Thanksgiving that come because of the affluence in which we live, and uh, we tend to talk about uh, these things, today 
let's consider our spiritual heritage in Christ. Uh, These spiritual benefits are available to us only by faith in Jesus. They're only available by saying yes to what God is offering to us. And and, uh, it is only because of his victory on the cross of Calvary. Uh, One of the songs we sang, you know, it's amazing to think that he took our place. What we deserved, he took on so that we can have what we don't deserve, which is God's grace, love, and mercy. That is indeed uh, wonderful news. Let me wind down. There's a paradox, a paradox in here in our relationship to the world. And, and it is found in verses 15 to 17 where he talks about the fact, do not love the world, uh, the love of the world and the love of the Father he says, are mutually exclusive. You cannot love the world and also love God. It's either this or that. You've got to make up your mind. And we're saying, oh, just a minute, is, is that not a dissonance in John's writings? Because this is the same Apostle John who wrote John 3.16. And, and every Sunday school scholar will remember the, the main theme of the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. God so loved the world. Most of us probably memorized in the King James Version. But the point is, is that not a contradiction to what he is saying now? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2, 15. How do we reconcile these two very different messages from the same pen, the same writer, the same apostle? Did God change his mind? Is this a contradiction? Or do we need to look elsewhere for an answer? Well, very quickly, two things. First of all, we need to understand what is meant by the word world, the word Greek word cosmos. In general usage, the word means the whole material universe, planet Earth, or it can be applied to the totality of human inhabitants. When we talk, talk of the world, generally that's what we mean. Uh, however, in John's gospel and in his epistles, the same word cosmos is used in order to refer primarily to fallen humanity, to the negative aspect of this world, of worldliness. And that is hostile to God and is desperately need of redemption and salvation and cleansing. So that's the first thing we need to know. Secondly, how is the word love used in this context? Because God's love usually is used in order to speak of redemptive love, the sacrifice of Jesus. God's love implies transforming power through the good news of the gospel. God's love results in individuals being called out and gifted with new life in Christ. That's what love means in the Christian context. But what John is talking about here, the love for the world, has to do with not wasting love or affection on things which have no eternal value. Uh, Love for the world equates to lustful desire to participate in evil or worldly activities. 
Love for the world and its allurements implies a desire to conform and blend in with the world system so that nobody, you know, I'm a secret Christian, nobody else needs to know. That kind of thought. Uh, love for the world also implies being absorbed in the world rather than being transformed by the power of the gospel. Those are the things that we're struggling with uh, and the implications that we should not love the world uh, are opposite to the fact that if we do love the world, we need to learn to love the world as God loves the world, with redemptive love. Not to be part of it, not to fall in with them, not to do the same things, but rather to help people understand where you are leveling your life is so far removed from what God intended for you to experience. It means that we must be willing to change in order to meet the felt needs of people around us who need to know Jesus. That's more important whether to, than, than whether or not the worship service suits my particular style at this moment. Uh, it also means that we're willing to risk interacting with the world going anywhere and staying anywhere as our missionaries in Cameroon, for instance, uh, in order for the gospel to continue to be preached with power and with love and grace. Friends, as long as we live in this life, you and I will continue to face a threefold sin problem. Satan changes the cosmetics, but never the heart of the, of the deal. Uh, everything John says in, in second chapter 2, uh, 16, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, or as the King James Version put it, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from this world. And so therefore what he is saying, if you want to walk as Jesus walked, you can't go there. You can't embrace the world system and all that the world promises and offers. Um, walking as Jesus walked means focusing on pleasing his Father. It means seeking and saving the lost at any cost. It means healing the sick. It means thinking of others rather than thinking of self. And one final thought about that is John makes it very clear in this passage that there is no future in this world. All the stuff that we crave and strive for in this world is transitory stuff. Stuff that we should get rid of. Stuff that we should give away. God's promise in Christ is a forever life. Something that will transcend our current existence and comfort zone. Uh, ultimately, only what's done for Christ will last. And this is what he says in verse 17. And the world and its lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains, which means lives forever. Every sermon ought to have a so what. And the so what here, the challenge is this. Today as we celebrate Thanksgiving and as we walk as a faith community through the transition 
from a resignation of a pastor who has served us well and faithfully for 12 years to someone who is yet an unknown quantity at this point. And this is a process. It will not happen overnight. But as we do that, let's focus by God's grace on the real abiding values, on the abiding treasures of life, on eternal life, which is ours in Christ. So the question would be, how will my life look differently if I do that? What would have to change? 